Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 17, which will be on the screen in your worship folder, or you can follow along in the Pew Bible or the Bible that you brought if you did. So Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, Nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, He was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Gigi. Uh, Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Um, I would like to take a moment, because I know today for many people is very important and a cause for celebration, but for others, it can be a day uh, where there's profound sadness too and so I think it would be before we go any further in the sermon that we just take a moment if you would I know this is we're going off the page don't panic it's okay just follow me it's going to be all right but I'd like to stop and just pray um, and thank God for our moms 
and and just and pray for you know pray for certain categories of people that might be dealing with the day in certain ways that God would comfort them, uh, and pray because this is a strategic a strategic day for us in the sense that we believe we're called to the city for the next fifty years, and that means I've said it this way to people before. I hope that my time doing the work that I'm doing in the city of Winter Haven will be for the sake of how my grandchildren will experience Winter Haven to be a different city. Uh, and so our children are the ones that are going to do the work. They're the ones that are going to really get the work done. It's the next generation that's really going to bear the fruit that we desire to see happen in our city. And so we just need to, we need to be faithful parents, and we need God's spirit to help us with that, right? Uh, and so if you would, before we get into this passage, let me, just, let, me, let me stop and pray. Can we do that? Heavenly Father, I do pray and thank you for our moms. I thank you for my mom, and I miss her, and I wish she was here. Uh, but I thank you for all that she taught me and, and all the ways that she trained me. And so we just want to stop and say thank you. Uh, what, a, what a great gift that you would give us moms. Uh, and so honor, help us to honor those women this morning in our lives. But we pray also for those who, who like me, might uh, have had to say goodbye to their mom too early. And I pray that, that for those who might be mourning the loss of a mother or of a parent or of a loved one this morning, that you would uh, be a great comfort to them. Uh, and help them to rejoice and celebrate all the memories that they do have. I pray for those who are expecting moms, who have children on the way. Uh, it may be some for the first time. And I pray for you, you to continue to sustain those women in their pregnancies. Uh, I pray for the women here who desperately want to be moms. Or those who have even grown past childbearing age who wanted to be moms but were never able to have children. And I pray for great grace and great mercy and great comfort on those women as well. Give them a ministry like Amy Carmichael, who, who didn't want children because she was afraid they would take away from her ministry, and then yet in your sovereign mercy, you gave her a ministry as a mom to children and orphans in India. <laughs> and so those women who have not been blessed with children, give them a ministry. Make, make them aware of all the children running around this place, and may they be moms, spiritual mothers to those children. Father, help us. Help us to raise these children that you've given to us. Thank you that there's so many running around here. We're so blessed. Help us to be faithful as mothers and fathers in the rearing of these children and the training of them and the nurturing in them of faith and repentance and good works so that they might be rich in good deeds towards you. We need your Holy Spirit. Would you come and send him? Help us today to honor our mothers, but in honoring them to honor you and in thanking them to thank you. And teach us this morning from this passage about the way that you mother and father us. And may it bear much fruit in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Thanks for giving me that privilege. Uh, We are coming to the end of a series we've been doing out of the book of Hebrews for the past few months. Here again in Hebrews chapter 12, and you'll see as Steve talked to us about last week, that the uh, dominant met- metaphor that the, the Hebrews writer is using at this point is that life is a race that we must run. The word translated race there is a Hebrew word, literally agona, from which we get our word. Anybody? Agony. So it, it really is a sense of uh, there is an agony. There's an agonizing, and if, you, and if you wanted to see agonizing people, you should have gone to Lake Mirror last night and watched the people who ran Mayfair. Right? Because they do it, they, it's, like, it's like my grandma, grandmothers used to say, uphills both ways through five feet of snow and all that kind of stuff. That's what that race feels like. It's agony. It's hard. 
And so the Hebrews writer says, life is like a race. It's an agony that we must endure. It's a race that we must run. So the options are not, okay, let me be very careful. The options for us are not A, don't run, or B, don't run. Okay, those aren't the options. The options are A, run looking to Jesus, or B, run not looking to Jesus. I want to make sure we understand that. There are two commandments, dominant commandments in the book of Hebrews. We are to rest and we are to run. Chapter 4, rest. Chapter 12, run. But we have to be careful not to separate them from one another and make them either or categories rather than both and categories. To rest in Jesus doesn't mean you stop running. It means you run differently. It means you run with, with a different core motivation. You run from a different power source, but you run. Life is a race we must run. It's in an agony we must endure. And so that should provide a certain expectation. It's going to be hard. I mean, the Hebrews writer is very, very upfront with us. Life will be full of obstacles and frustrations and heartaches. We're going to get weary. There are going to be days, sometimes more days than not, when we feel like giving up. I mean, today's Mother's Day, right? And, and the, this is true of raising children, let's be honest. I mean, the promise of Genesis 3 is just this. In pain, God says to the woman, in pain you shall bring forth children. Okay? So the job description of mothering, pain. Can I get an amen, moms? Right? Joy, right? Unbelievable joy. But also pain. And this is life. And so what we need is to endure. This, this, the scripture is calling us to endurance. That's what this whole section of this book is about. That we need to, there's an, there's an agony that we must push through, that we must endure through. So how do you get the endurance? Endurance means you meet with an obstacle, but you don't give up, you don't despair, you keep going. So how do we keep going? How do we endure? And the answer this passage offers is that you have to get a new perspective on the pain. You have to see that in your pain and in your suffering and your hardship, the Lord is a father who has disciplined you. And so that's what we want to see this morning, okay? And there's a few things about discipline that we want to see. We want to see first uh, the reason, what, what we learn about the reason for the father's disciplining us. Secondly, how we can respond wrongly to his discipline. But then thirdly, how we respond rightly and how you get the power to respond rightly. So th- those are the three things. The reasons for the discipline, wrong responses to the discipline, the right response to the discipline, and how it is we find the power and the courage to respond rightly instead of wrongly. Okay, that's where we're headed. Okay, let's start right here. Let's talk a little bit about what this passage teaches us about the reason why <clears throat> there's discipline. Okay, there are two metaphors the Hebrews writer uses in these verses to describe how we get the endurance we need. Two metaphors. The first metaphor is athletic training. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, life is a race we must endure. Okay? Now, if you've ever trained for a race, you start your training being able to endure, let's say, 3 miles. But the race you're training for is 12.1 miles. So, how do you increase your endurance from being able to go out and run three miles to be able to run 12 miles, right? What do you do? You create distress, right? You have to push yourself 
to run five miles when your body's only able to run three. You have to intentionally make it hard and push to the point of complete exhaustion, or in the case of Steve Straub, nausea, right? I mean, you've got to go and you've got to run until you throw up. That's how you do it. That's the only way, that's the only way you do it. You have to agonize. Okay, if you have a muscle in your body that's weak, how do you make it strong? You have to introduce resistance. You have to introduce stress. You have to make it strain to do its job. And as it works hard to cope with the stress, it grows in strength. So on the track or in the gym, when you're weak, you're strong. See that? The weaker your muscles get, the stronger they're actually becoming. That's what's physiologically happening in your body when you're involved in athletic training. So the way you get endurance then is to see trials and sufferings that you're facing, that they're actually training you for the way, in the same way a runner trains for a race. That's the first metaphor. You're having to agonize through. And through the agonizing, you become strong. Okay? Second metaphor is the way you get endurance is to see you're being trained, not only the way a, a runner is trained for a race, but you're being trained, secondly, the way a child is trained by his parents. See, the people this letter is written to are suffering. Life's gotten really hard for them, and the Hebrews writer speaks into their suffering. And here's what he says. He says, God is disciplining you. That's the reason. That's the reason it's hard. That's the reason you're having to go through what you're going through. God's disciplining you the way a father or a mother disciplines a child. Look at verse 7. God is treating you as sons, he says. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, so he says, look at the circumstances that are hard in your life. Look at your suffering. He says, that's not coincidence. That's, that's not just happening. That didn't come out of left field. God's fathering you. And, and this would have made complete sense to the Christians this letter was written to. But let's be honest. Oh, we get a little knotted up by that thought, don't we? we got some work to do here. Because look at the statement there in verse 7. He says, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He takes for granted that the role of a father in the life of his son or the role of a mother in the life of her child is to provide discipline. Fathers and mothers discipline their children. That's their job. And our culture just really, really, really pushes back against that, doesn't it? Today's Mother's Day. This is an appropriate metaphor, right? Parents are responsible for the physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual growth and development of their children. You tell me, how do moms produce character? How do they produce health in their children? How do they teach them right and wrong? What's the process? Through discipline. So if a father notices an area of weakness in his children, for example, they're lazy, right? They're lazy. If he's a good father, he doesn't just ignore it because he knows that if he doesn't address the laziness in the child, the child will grow up to be what? A lazy adult. And so parents address issues of weakness and sin in their children through the process of discipline. What happens if a mom refuses to discipline her children? Proverbs twenty nine fifteen. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Okay? A child left to himself is a disaster waiting to happen. That's what the Bible says. 
Okay, so there's a doctrine that the, that, that, that the Scripture is... There's a doctrine being developed here by the Hebrews writer. And it's just as he says... That, well, let me, let me say it this way. In James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, here's what James says about these kinds of trials and sufferings and temptations in our lives. He says, Consider it joy when you face trials because the suffering you're having to endure produces endurance which will make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, he says, face trials with joy because you know that the suffering you have to go through is producing endurance, which in turn will produce maturity, completeness, and you'll lack nothing. So how do you become a spiritually mature person? How do you grow strong spiritually? James 1, the rest of the Bible, the answer is, it's through suffering. You become strong when you have to face some kind of trial and you get through it and the getting through it increases your capacity to face overwhelming obstacles and to not give up. So a couple points of application just at the beginning of the sermon here. And the first is just this. What this means is that trials and hardships are an absolute necessity and they're a redemptive part of life. Trials and hardships are an absolutely necessary and redemptive part of life. See, and what we've got to do is we have to change our expectation. We have to adjust what we expect and our whole filter through which we see these things. Because, see, if things get hard, it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Our culture has such, the American society has such a severe allergy allergy to pain and inconvenience. And we, what the Bible's saying is we have to adjust, we have to change our perspective. Because, you see, if your goal, like the goal of most Americans, if your goal is to avoid suffering at all costs, to avoid hardship of any kind, then when you find yourself faced with some kind of suffering or some kind of hardship, what will happen is you'll melt down. You'll shrink back like these people are doing. But if your goal is endurance, and if you know the only way for you to grow in endurance is to have to push into these hard circumstances, then you'll become a person of substance and character. You'll accept the suffering. You'll accept the hard times. You'll accept the challenges and the obstacles and the frustrations as a necessary part of the process of God making you into the person that he so longs for you to be. But in this letter, these people that he's writing to, it's gotten hard for them. And what he told us back in chapter 10 is they've begun to shrink back. They're thinking about quitting. In other words, their response to the hardship is, we're, we're out of here. And the message of the letter is that if, if you shrink back from every obstacle, if every time it gets hard, you're out. If your life strategy is to avoid you know, hardship at all costs, the result will be that you'll be spiritually anemic. I mean, show me someone who you admire for their spiritual maturity and character, and I will show you someone who's suffered. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance leads to character. It's the discipline of the Lord, right? God is disciplining us. He's treating us as sons. Now, just let me go back to to mothers for just a minute. Since today's Mother's Day. Moms, let me talk at you for just a minute. In 1 Timothy 2, 14, the Apostle Paul says this. He's talking about the fall, and he says, The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And listen to this statement in 1 Timothy 2.14. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love. And here's what I think Paul's saying, okay? I'm absolutely convinced that what Paul's saying is the sufferings of motherhood 
other God-ordained means for women to grow in grace. That, in other words, the pains of mothering, the pain of mothering is how God gets character into moms. I mean, I would tell you, if, if and I think the people who know me well, my, my family and my close friends would say um, that, that maybe I've grown a little bit in character over the last 10 to 15 years of my life, and I would tell you, that the, the one thing more than anything else in my life that I think has contributed to my, if there's been any growth in my character, is having to figure out how to raise children. It's hard. Right? Because they're selfish and I'm selfish, and you put those two things together, and it's just an atomic bomb waiting to explode at any moment. And I like to sleep, but they wake you up in the middle of the night. Right? And I want to watch television, but there's only one TV, and they like to watch shows that I don't like to watch. And I mean, and there are a million things like this, and so what do you have to learn? You have to learn as a parent to be a person who doesn't think about themselves, but thinks about the good of the person you're supposed to care for. And so trial and hardship are absolutely necessary, and they're a redemptive part of life. See, that's the first application. It's the pain, it's the pain of life that gets character into us. And secondly then, the second point of application, just at the beginning of of our time here this morning, is then we have to see trials and sufferings as God's fatherly care for us. That's what what the writer's trying to do here. That's what all of these verses from verse verse 5 down to verse 11, that's what all of this is about. This requires incredible faith, but what he wants us to see is that the trials and the sufferings that they're enduring and the ones that we have to endure too is God's fatherly care for us. Suffering is discipline. That, that word discipline is the Greek word paideia. It's the word from which we get our word pediatrician. In other words, God in bringing hard things into our lives, he is acting like a, he is caring for us as children. He is showing fatherly care and concern for us. So what you can't do is you can't look at the hard stuff in your life and say, God doesn't love me. I mean, this passage won't let you do that. If you're here and you're a Christian this morning, you have to look at the hard things in your life, not as evidence that God doesn't love you and that he doesn't care for you. Those things are the authentication that you are his son and that he loves you and that he's doing good to you. You see, you see what he says here? He says, if you're not disciplined by the Lord, you're an illegitimate child. In other words, Coming into the family of God through faith and repentance, becoming a Christian doesn't make you exempt from the hard things of life. It puts you in the way of a father who's intent on parenting you through bringing hard things into your life. But it changes the way you approach those things. They're not random acts of cruel hostility. They're the loving hand of a father. And what we are told we can be sure of, no matter what it is you're having to endure, no matter what the pain is that you have to kind of embrace, you know, embrace for the moment what we can be sure of is if you're a Christian and if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is fathering you and no matter what it is you're having to go through, it's not an indication that he's left you, that he's abandoned you, that he doesn't love you. It is the authentication that he, number one, loves you, verse 6, and that because he lo- loves you, he's committed to doing good to you. Verse 10. So this is what the Hebrews writer wants us to see. These are the reasons. God, we, we, the way you get endurance is to train the way a runner trains, to be trained by God the way of, 
a mother or father trains their child. And so a good parent brings low-level suffering into the life of their child. That's what they do. They have to do that. But secondly then, if this is what we can expect, then we need to talk some about how we respond wrongly and rightly to this, this intention upon God's, on God's part to bring hard things into our lives in order to discipline us, to grow us in character. Okay, so secondly, these verses warn us that there are two wrong responses, and you find them in verse 5. So look there in verse 5. He says, in this quotation from Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not regard lightly, in other words, do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So on the one hand, you can despise discipline. You can, you can regard it lightly. You can make little of it, and that's a wrong response. But you can also be crushed by it. You can, it can become too much for you. You can faint underneath it and grow weary, and that's wrong too. So let's talk about each of these and the underlying causes for just a minute, okay? Wrong response number one, he says, do not regard lightly. Do not despise the discipline of the Lord. And this, that, that word despise, that the word regard lightly literally means despise. It means you just make little of it. And so the illustration I would use to kind of describe this for you is you have a child who you might catch in a lie, and so you go to the child and you say, did you lie to me? The child says, yes, I did. And so as the parent, you say, go to your room. You're not going to the birthday party this afternoon. And the child begins in response to that discipline to kick and scream and wail and bite the carpet and do all kinds of crazy stuff, right? And goes to the room and slams the door. That's good, right? That's good. That's a child not regarding lightly the discipline of their parent. But then there's the kind of child, and I have one of these. There's one. I'm not going to tell you which one, but there's one. I have one of these. You say, did you lie? Child, yes. Parent, go to your room. You're not going to the birthday party today. Well, that's fine. I didn't want to go to the birthday party anyway. You didn't. That's good to know. You know, it's the same thing. Eat your peas or you're going to bed. Then I'll just go to bed. Okay. Take your happy room into your room and go to bed then. Right? What's the child doing? See, that's a child who despises the discipline of their parents. The child, he's making the parent the enemy and not the lying. And we have to be honest, okay? I mean, let's, let's just be honest. We have to say our culture typically despises discipline. I mean, the rise of secularism and humanism in our culture, in Western culture, has led to a decline in the practice of discipline in the home. If you're a disciplinarian with your children, you are looked upon with deep suspicion. And if you want to know, if you just want a picture of how quickly this has happened in our culture, I'm 37 years old, okay? So I'm, not, I'm young. Let's, I'm young. I'm pretty young, okay? But, but even so, 20 years ago, I started to do the math. This makes me feel old. I was at Denison Middle School 20 years ago. 22 years ago, 1990. Okay, 22 years ago. That's not a long time. 22 years ago at Denison Middle School, if you got into trouble, you went to Mr. McCullough's office, and he took a paddle, and he beat your bottom. And I was scared to death of that. Okay? It didn't happen, because I was a rule follower, because there's no way. That man was big. There was no way I was spreading eagle with my hands on his desk so that he, can, so he could take a piece of wood to my behind. How unthinkable is that today? And what have we lost because of it? <laughs> Says the older gentleman in the back. Right? 
And if you want a picture of what I'm talking about, I don't know, I don't know why this story stands out to me, but it just, it just I, I, I got red in the face. I don't know if you saw, and I'm a baseball fan, so I watch lots of baseball, but there was, this, there was a, an incident at a baseball game a few weeks ago where a couple was at a Texas Rangers baseball game, and they were there uh, on their honeymoon, and they had just gotten married, and a foul ball came, and they caught the, the or actually, I'm sorry, at the end, you know, at the, end of the, at the end of the inning, sometimes the first baseman will come over and flip the ball into the stands, and the first baseman came over and flipped it to the stands, and this couple caught it, and they were all excited, and it, woohoo, you know, and they're there celebrating the fact that they just got married, and it's their first Texas Ranger game, and they're all excited. Next to them is a two-year-old or three-year-old kid, uh, and, and this three-year-old kid just becomes distraught over the fact that the ball did not go to him. And so they're over there, and they're celebrating. They're taking pictures, and, and, here, and then right next to them, literally, and he's turned this way, so I, I can tell they really couldn't see him. And they said later they didn't, they didn't really know what was going on, but the child's over there crying, bawling his eyes out. And they're playing the Yankees, and, of course, everything to do with the New York Yankees, Yankees is suspicious up front. Um, but the Yankees, you know, because they're, they're, they're the evil empire in the Star Wars trilogy. I mean, you know, if you're a baseball fan, that's really the truth. And so on the television, as all of this is going on, the Yankees announcer is just berating these people for not giving the ball to the, to the kid. Because the kid's desire for the ball and his crying his eyes out because he didn't get the ball, in that person's mind, is justification enough for why they need to give the ball to the kid. Because we're raising children who all they have to do is cry, and then we give them whatever they want. They went on the Today Show the next day. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, it was this whole big thing. And I look at it, and I'm just like, you've got to, I mean, you know, what the parents had to say is there, they offered, to, later, there was so much pressure, they offered to give the kid the ball, and the parents said, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? The kid cried, he wants the ball. What three-year-old kid? We can't give a kid whatever he wants anytime he wants something. He won't learn how to work hard and get, do the stuff he needs to do. Yeah, this is, this is just the milieu of our culture that we're, you know, we're, this, all of this disdaining of, it's almost unthinkable that a parent would say no to their child. You know, you're crying your eyes out. Can I, you're being ridiculous. Right? Oh, but they're cute and they're sweet. No, they're little, they're sinners <laughs> that need to be taught how to deal with life. In life, you don't just put your hand up and the baseball gets thrown to you, right? It just it doesn't happen. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I, off my soapbox and back, right? I just, oh my gosh, it just drove me insane. And, and we are a culture that despises discipline. I mean, we, we tell our parents that the job of the parent is just to give in to the whims of the child. That's what it means to be a good parent. But if you despise discipline, see, here's what's going to happen. The moment things get hard for you, what you'll do, let me, what you'll do is you'll begin to strategize about how to get out from underneath it. And most of us in this room are lucky enough, we have resources, and what you'll do is you'll take your resources, you'll take your money or your connections or whatever, and what you'll be tempted to do is where there's hard, where there's pain you're having to endure, you'll take those resources and you'll use those resources to alleviate the suffering. And parents, if you do that for your child all the time, you'll ruin them. We all know that, right? But what's ironic is, is the way we manage our own lives is the very thing we would never do for our children. Be careful. Don't make the pain the enemy. And don't make God the enemy. Right? Don't make pain the enemy and don't make God the enemy. You have to outsmart. The sin in your heart is the enemy. 
And God is using the pain, the way a good parent uses pain, to, to discipline you and to root out the sin in your life. So if you despise God's discipline, you won't endure. Because eventually what will happen is a hardship will come that will be beyond your ability to manage and you'll fall apart. But then the second, the second response that's, that's wrong, and I've got to get on it, I've got to hurry up a little bit here, is to be crushed by it. So you can, you can regard lightly the discipline, but then on the other side you can cr- be crushed by it. Okay, look at, look at uh, verse 5 again. You can, you can become weary under it. And down in verse 12, he has to talk. This is what's happened to these people. They've, got, they've become faint-hearted under the discipline of the Lord. And so I love the language that he uses there in verse 12. He says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I mean, can't you just get the picture of when I turn to my kid and I tell him no, and what do they do? I mean, that, and I am prone to exaggeration. That's not an exaggeration. Dad, I want to do that. No. And that literally is the picture of what he's saying. He said, lift your drooping hands, right? Strengthen your weak knees. Come on, people. Get it together. I mean, this is a person who has just lost the strength to even live and is stumbling around because they've been crushed and they're just cowering. And so if your spirit is crushed when things get hard, you know, then you won't endure either. You'll wither. And these are the two wrong responses. Okay, now, if you've moved in either of these two directions, what this passage says, and you've got to go, you've got to connect it to, to the verses that come in verses 12 through 17. I just want to make one insight about those, those five verses because we don't have time to hit everything. But what, what, I want you to connect this. What he's telling us is, is if you've moved in either of those two, in, into either of those two wrong responses, you're going to end up bitter. Verse 15. There's a root of bitterness that will be constantly springing up in your life and causing trouble. You see that there? And here's what this looks like. Let me just explain it to you. This root of bitterness uh, will make you a number of different things. It'll make you discontent. It'll cause you to be forever complaining about your circumstances. You'll always be thinking about, you know, how you've gotten the short end of the stick. You'll be filled with envy towards other people who you believe to have it better than you do. You'll be full of self-pity. You'll be hypercritical of people, especially people who have what you want and what you think you deserve. There'll be a root of bitterness, he says. And some people react bitterly to God's discipline because they don't think they need it. And this is the typical response of the irreligious person, just like the child who, in the middle of being disciplined, makes the parent the enemy and not the lying the enemy. An irreligious person, right, a secular person would say, why does God need to discipline me? I mean, I'm I'm a pretty good person. I mean, that's ridiculous. Who wants a God like that? I I don't need God to do this. And that's a foolish heart. But then there are other people who react bitterly to God's discipline because they don't think they deserve it. See, the first person doesn't think they need it. The second person doesn't think they deserve it. And this is the typical response of a religious person. And so a religious person, and that's a lot of us in this room, by the way, typically goes in one of two ways when they encounter suffering. Either they get full of self-loathing, they hate themselves, and they get mad at themselves because they failed and they've done something wrong, or they get full of anger, they get mad with God. And the reason they get angry with God is because they believe they deserve better. They've been good. They've followed the rules. Therefore, they deserve a nice, happy life, not all the suffering and pain. And the struggle for the religious person is just this. You know, God, I've done my part. Now you do your part. And here's what I see a lot, a lot, is when people come to me and they see me and they're discouraged and they're weary and they're faint-hearted and they're ready to give up because it's hard and no matter how they, you know, try to maneuver things and what they try to do to fix it, they can't seem to make it any better. And at the bottom, underneath all the things they say that they, that they know they should say, 
the reason they're so discouraged is because they think they deserve better. And they're angry because God hasn't come through. He's not done for them what they think he should as payment for all their hard work and commitment. And I want you to look carefully at what the text is saying. What it's saying is, is if you're bitter, either because you think you don't need discipline or because you think you don't deserve it, it's because you've forgotten grace. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up. If you're bitter, if you're angry at God for how your life has turned out, if you murmur, if you complain, if you chirp constantly about how rotten your life is, and if you're full of envy, if you dig deep enough, you'll find the root problem is you've forgotten that salvation is by grace. You've got too high an opinion of yourself. Good works don't get you anywhere with God. No amount of religious devotion can make God a debtor to you or I. Every breath we breathe is a mercy. Every millisecond of our life is an unmerited gift of sheer grace. How dare we? Does the clay say to the potter that forms it, what are you doing? Salvation is by grace. And if you know in your soul that salvation is by grace, that you have nothing with which to commend yourself to God, then you will receive good and bad, smiling providences and dark providences as his gracious gifts. But if you think you've earned something through your hard work, you'll be looking for payment. When it doesn't come, it'll crush you. It'll suck the life right out of you. And it'll leave you faint-hearted. And that's what's happened to these Hebrew Christians. And I'm out of time, but I need to come to this third point. And so then the right response, if those are the wrong responses, the right response then is to not despise God's discipline and to not be crushed by it either, to not be embittered by it, but, look here, to endure full of confidence that he loves you and that no matter how painful it feels at the moment, he is doing good to you. That is what the Hebrews writer wants for us. But what does that look like? Uh, let me give you a couple practical examples, and then I'm done. Let me just let me give you a couple of ways of what I think this looks like. Application number one, we need to receive discipline as a child. You're a child. See, that's the point of the passage. And children never fully understand the reasons for their parents' disciplines. Moms, you know this, right? Even in your best moments, when you're laying down discipline, the child never fully understands. And so you say, you know, you say to God, I don't understand all of this. I don't know what it is you're doing but I believe that you know what's best. But see, to despair under God's discipline is an act of pride. Because if you're despairing, you think you're wise enough to know how your life should go. It means you're unhappy with the way God's running your life. And if he would just listen to you and do things the way you think they should be done, then everything would be okay. You can do a better job than God. Despair is for omniscient people. (laughs) Receive it as a child. But receive it as a child of the perfect father or mother. See, that's the second application. You may not fully understand what God's doing through the suffering you're having to endure. You may not know the reasons for, you know, for it coming into your life, but you can know that no matter what he does, he is holy and wise and good. And one of the verses that Ashley and I have had to go back to over and over again in our life together that we've held on to when we've been tempted to question God's providences is Deuteronomy 32.4. It just says this, God is a rock... His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. I mean, verse 10 says, Earthly fathers, they discipline us for a short time, as seemed best to them. Don't you love that? (laughs) It's kind of a mixed bag. But he disciplines us for our good. 
In every case of human parenting, there were mixed motives. All you can do as a parent is try your best, but there will always be these selfish motivations involved because parents, human parents are sinners too. And so even though human parenting often has the good of the child in mind, parents aren't ever free of self-concern and selfishness. So human, human parenting is imperfect, but not God's. God's discipline of us is only ever for our good. He is a perfect father, and therefore his discipline is perfect because it is always rooted in his love for us and not offended pride or self-concern. And it's always motivated by doing good to us. He doesn't make mistakes. His works are perfect. Do you trust him? See? In whatever way he's disciplining you right now, do you trust him? In whatever pain or disappointment you're experiencing... Do you believe he's doing good? Because if you do, then the third application is is you won't quit. You'll keep going. You'll be undeterred. See, that's the engine of faith in the suffering. But the fuel for the engine is found way back at the beginning of the chapter, and this is what I'm going to finish with, I promise. How do you find the faith to believe in the middle of great agony that God loves you and is doing good to you? How do you find the courage to trust him in the midst of that? And in verse 2, the answer, as Jonathan's already said, is you look to Jesus. The Hebrews writer says carefully in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so in comparison to the suffering Jesus had to endure, the suffering you and I face is minimal. I'm pretty confident that few, if any of us in the room this morning, have had to endure or even would to the point of shedding our blood. And yet, the Savior that we serve shed his blood. Jesus' suffering was a cross, a death, having to face the wrath of God against sin, and yet... He endured, but how did he endure, see? And we saw it last week, but it bears repeating in verse 2 there. We look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was the secret of Jesus' endurance? Joy. There was a joy that was set before him that was so profound that it made the suffering of the cross seem minimal to his soul. So what was the joy that was set before him? That he had to go through the cross to have. It can only be one thing. It can't be glory because he had glory. It can't be the Father because he had the Father. It can't be a crown because he had a crown. There's only one thing, the only possible answer, the one thing that he didn't have that he had to go through the cross to get was you and me. We are his joy. And so how can you be sure in the midst of the suffering that God is for you, that he's a good Father who loves you and is doing you good? You have to know you're his joy. That's the reason Jesus went to the cross. It's not only the reason, but his love for you, his joy in you, was the power for him to endure the cross. Jeremiah Burroughs was a pastor in the 17th century, and at one point in his ministry there was an outbreak of plague in England, and people were dying everywhere, and he took that as an opportunity to begin to preach a sermon, a series of sermons on contentment. (laughs) It's now a little book, and it's amazing. Uh, it's unbelievable. And in the book, he writes this. I just, just listen to this. The truth is that the afflictions of God's people come from the same eternal love that Jesus Christ came from. Did you hear that? The afflictions come from the same eternal love that Jesus Christ came from. All God's strokes are strokes of love and mercy. The ways of God, the, way, the ways of affliction as well as the ways of prosperity are mercy and love. Grace gives a man an eye, a piercing eye, to pierce into the counsel of God, those eternal counsels of God for good to him. And even in his afflictions, he can see the love of God. He can see the love of God in every affliction, as well in every prosperity. See, that's the key. Moms, you want to become the kind of mom that can persevere through the sufferings of motherhood? 
in faith and love and good works, you have to see the love of God for you in your afflictions. How do you see the love of God for you in your afflictions? Look to Jesus. See, it was his love for you that caused him to endure. And when you see him enduring because of the joy he had in you, then he will become your joy and you'll be able to endure. Look to Jesus. Consider him. Take the gospel truth and screw it down into your heart through the means of grace. That's what it means to run. And that, my friends, is how we endure. Thanks for being patient with me. Let's pray, okay? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for how you shout the love you have for us and the love that Jesus displayed for us in going to the cross. Come now and work in our hearts by grace to give us faith and the eyes of faith to be able to pierce into the counsels of the Godhead to see that even our afflictions are sourced from the same love that you have for us that sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world so that we might see your love in our afflictions as well as our prosperities because people who can do that will be great parents. People who can see love in their afflictions will be a people who won't be put off by anything. That's a people that can take a city. And that's what we so long to be and do. And so come and work in our hearts in that way even as we sing these songs and we pray these things in your name. Amen. If you're here and your faith is not in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, what we're saying is true. The promise is that if you put your faith and trust in him, then the God of the universe becomes your father, and that means that all the different parts of your life come under his care for you. Isn't that good news? But if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then if the struggle of your life, like mine, still is to screw down into your heart the truth that even in your pain and your sorrows and in your disappointments... Uh, God is doing good to you and he's loving you. If it's hard, if it's hard to get that down into your heart, then you need to come Friday uh, because the man who's taught us about the gospel is going to be here. His name's Paul Miller. And, and we are going to spend two days looking at Jesus because that's what we need to do. Okay, but also you need to stretch your hands out and you need to receive by faith the promise of this benediction this morning. I mean, here is the promise that no matter what you leave this place to go to, in this benediction is the promise that you go... Not outside of God's plan for your life or his will for you, but you go being confident that whatever you will meet, it is his good work in your life that he promises to go with you. So receive this then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.